So good morning. There we go. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning, and uh, we're looking at elders and deacons. These are the, we've moved in back into the New Testament, five weeks in the New Testament, and these are letters that were written to the early church leaders. We're going to take five weeks and look at some of those letters. Um, it's actually 1 and 2 Timothy and Thessalonians. Um, and as we move into the New Testament again, uh, I was reminded yesterday, um, today's, today's topic is about authority and leadership and structures above us and whatnot, and very well-timed, God sent me a reminder of some of the authorities in my life. I got my voter registration card, my, my renewal, I think, since we moved. Um, I now get to vote here, which is awesome. That's kind of cool. But uh, I have a city district, a county district, a state house, a state senate, a U.S. Congress, a governor, and a president. So seven levels of some type of authority over me in a governmental perspective. So that helped me remember that I'm always under authority, right? Even if I want to think I'm this independent, do my own thing, whatever, nope, there's all this structure and all this authority over us all the time. So we're going to look at uh, God's Human Resources Department this morning. And uh, that's the best I could come up with, right? But uh, one of the things I think that we can help our leaders, and that's the perspective that I want to look at it this morning, is helping our leaders, uh, is to be leadable, right? Because um, I'm, I'm going to skip down toward the end of the text today. Um, most of the time when we read what Paul has written, it's very easy. You start at the beginning, you read all the way through, you get to the end. makes sense. Nice logical. Well, Paul tells us the reason that he wrote this chapter at the end of this chapter. So we're going to jump toward the end first. So if you look at uh, 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, it says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church. So, so this chapter is not written for pastors and leaders in the church. It's written for the church to know how to conduct ourselves. All right. So it's much broader than just... Did Paul write this letter to Timothy? Absolutely, he wrote this letter to Timothy. So that he could understand how everything ought to work. Um, so kind of begin with the end in mind there. So one of the other things that I want to remember today is that the New Testament, if you've got your hand out, this is the first blank. The New Testament uses many different words for the leadership positions that we will look at today. And this is really one of the things that makes a literal translation of the Bible really annoying to read sometimes. Uh, and I get that. I totally, totally get that. Um, because the word, bishop, elder, presbyter, preacher, shepherd, steward, pastor, those all refer to the same person in the church. But they use all these different English words because there's all these different Greek words. And basically the idea, and you guys have heard most of this before, I believe, but basically the idea is that each one of those words describes a very specialized component of what that person does, right? So if you think about your job description at work, right? How many of you have a job description at work? You know, our pastor's was written 2,000 years ago. Our pastor's job description was written 2,000 years ago. That's kind of neat, isn't it? Kind of know what's going to happen, right? So next year, I don't have to worry about the rules changing. That's cool. It's going to be a little static here. So if you have a job description at work, there's usually several different bullet points that say they're responsible for this and responsible for this and responsible for this and responsible for this. And the last line is and whatever else my boss wants me to do, right? So the, the good thing is that there's not one of those in 1 Timothy 3. So all the preachers of the world said, yay. Um, but there's all these different words that are used to describe these same 
these same offices. Um, and one other thing I thought was really interesting, I found this guy named Linsky. I'd never used any of his stuff before, but he said all the qualifications listed that we're going to get to except aptness to teach and that pertaining to a novice are requirements that apply to all Christians. That's your second blank, to all Christians. So we can look at this list in 1 Timothy 3 and go, yeah, well, there's no reason we can't live up to that standard too. That's a good standard. And then the last thing kind of before we really get into the text is that we sometimes read the New Testament and feel like Paul had all his stuff lined up, straightened out from the first day that he started writing. And he really didn't. His theology, and I don't want to use the word evolved, but it, ref it was refined and clarified as he moved through his writings in the New Testament. First Timothy is one of the last letters that Paul ever wrote. And he will state some things about church leadership positions in First Timothy that appear on the surface to contradict other things earlier in his writings. Um, like we'll talk about today, Paul lays out the requirements for elders and deacons, right? That's the text for today. And he talks about deacons being the husband of one wife. Well, in Romans chapter 16, he commanded a deaconess named Phoebe. And in case you're a little slow in your names, Phoebe is not a man's name, right? So you're kind of going, well, how do we get to she was doing a great job to 10, 12 years later going, this is the box that we live in. Well, church was new, right? Everything was brand new. When God instituted some of these things, he didn't give 9,000 rules and regulations around it. The apostles looked at a need and they said, let's go work, do this need. We need people to go do this work. So they threw bodies at it. And over time, wise men that looked at this said, there should be some guidelines around who gets to do this because these type of people do it really, really well. It works best under these constraints. So Paul starts adding to what the box looks like. Now, Dave, Dave Iverson, I got Dave Iverson on my brain today because it's Dave Iverson's birthday today. So if you get a chance to see him, say happy birthday to him. Uh, Dave Barber spoke a couple weeks ago. You remember the white rope? Anybody remember the white rope that Dave Barber used? Yep. Well, he put this white rope on the ground, and he said there's freedom inside this white rope, right? Because this is the boundaries that God has put in our lives to keep us safe. And you can move around anywhere you want to in those. And that's what Paul is doing. He's putting some boundaries around church leadership positions so that there's some freedom to go and do the work. These aren't handcuffs. This is what works best. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me so far? I've got a couple puzzled looks. Well, hopefully clarify that in a little bit. So verse 1, here we go. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires, and the desire word here is literally to stretch out and to reach. Is that Coke or coffee? I don't want any part of that. Who's got Coke in a cup? We have Coke in a cup. Something other than coffee in a cup? Water. That's what I would desire, right? So I would reach out and want this. This would be something, I have a cup of water up there. In case you guys wonder, I don't ever drink coffee before Sunday school. You don't want that. Um, <laughs> But water would be something I would reach out and desire. And this is, this is the idea here. He's reaching out. He wants something here, which is really strange at this point in time because if you think about the New Testament, I mean, this was written somewhere around 62, 64 A.D. Being a leader in a church was not a highly popular, well-paying, uh, elevated status position at that time, right? What happened to a lot of church leaders in this period of history? Anybody know? They were martyred. 
they, they were killed, right? So, so when Paul says if somebody is reaching out, they're stretching out and they desire a church leadership position, put that in perspective, right? Because these would be men that were risking their lives to go and do this. So if a man desires the position of a bishop, so does anybody have a different translation there? An overseer, and that's literally what the word bishop means. It means to look over into. And the idea is that it's somebody that's looking into our business. And we as independent Americans go, that's my business. It's not their business, it's my business. Well, when we understand the church is a family, it is our business, right? Your business is my business, and my business is your business, and because we impact each other, we are a family. That's the way this works. So if he, if he desires the position of a bishop, he desires, and this is actually a different Greek word. This is a, this is a word that means to lust or to covet after. So this is something that he strongly desires, a good work. And uh, <clears throat> I'm going to try not to break down here. One of the things that I have seen, I've been at Stuart Heights for, was it 12 years now? Yep, 12 years now. And uh, have served in a couple different capacities and have seen people come in and be incredibly excited and enthusiastic about service and enthusiastic about getting into a leadership position. And when they get into a leadership position, they become extremely disillusioned because they thought that it was about power. They thought that it was about having a status and a title. And I've got this title. And look at me. That's wonderful. And the reality, the reality is that and this is the commentary here, spiritual leadership in the church isn't all about titles and honor and glory. It's about work. Um, that's, that was an amen. I'm taking that as an amen. Boom, just like that. Um, but yeah, it's about work. It's about doing the work because we are called to do the work. We're not called to have the titles, right? I'm sure you all know somebody that you have worked with at some point in your past that had a title, that because they had a certain title, they felt they did not have to do certain work. Can you get a witness? Yeah. Is that a lot of fun, Justin, living in that world? It's not, is it? No. Okay. All right. So verse 2. A bishop, this is this overseer, then must be, and this is the present tense, and we're going to talk a lot about that present tense here in a little bit, must be blameless. Anybody have a different word in your Bible other than blameless? Above reproach. Anybody else? blameless. Okay. I don't want you to confuse these two things. This word came up, uh, the, the Hebrew version of this word came up when we studied Job a couple years ago. And I had a, a really, really good explanation of this. This word is not sinless. Sinless is your relationship with God. It's a vertical thing, right? Blameless is your relationship with man. It's a horizontal thing. Okay. Sinless is vertical. Blameless is horizontal. And the idea is that no one should be able to have just cause to hold something against you from holding a position, right? So, um, so Darla, if, if you saw, uh, we'll say, uh, Pastor Brian, okay? If you saw Pastor Brian walk into a 7-Eleven last night with a gun and, uh, and hold it up, right? And then preach this morning, would you think that you might have an issue with that? She's like, yes, I think I would have an issue. I would most certainly have an issue with that. Would we not, right? That is not 
blameless. What's that? Not in Tennessee, right? Yeah. Um, that is a not a blameless uh, type testimony. A blameless testimony is not a, not a perfect testimony. It's a testimony that nobody can say, I can assign this crime to you. I can assign this, this sinful activity that's in your life to you. Does that make sense? We're tracking here so far? We're going to talk a lot about words today because words are very important. So this blameless is horizontal. So verse 2, a bishop must been, then be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded. Okay? This is, uh, literally it means sane. It means not insane. So you should not put the insane in it. <laughs> I studied this word a lot, and it was, really? That's what it means? But apparently so, right? Um, and we have to remember, we have to remember, and I'm skipping down one, one uh, blank here, but the church is made up of former pagans, Right? All of us were former pagans at some point. So, so every generation has to continually learn this is the standard. And we have to repeat it. And some, of the stand, some parts of the standard are, well, duh, especially if you've been in church culture for any period of time whatsoever, but we have to continually repeat these things. These, this is going to be important that we don't put insane people in church leadership positions 100 years from now, right? It's just not going to be wise. Okay. So sober-minded of good behavior... This word is also translated modest in other places in the scripture. Uh, hospitable. Uh, and hospitable just means generous to guests. That's your blank. Generous to guests. Uh, there weren't a lot of, as we know from the Jesus' birth story, there weren't a lot of uh, hotels in that day that were very open and available to those of poor means. So the Christians, when you became a Christian, you generally got kicked out of your family, which meant you got cut off from that relation, that support type relationship. Thank you, Dave Barber. Appreciate you out there. Um, and there was a great need for Christians to rally around each other. And what Paul's saying is he's saying look for people who are looking for ways to help, who are looking for those that have been cast outside their families to bring in and to help and to support them. So this is the mindset of a leader. A leader has some vision to look out and to see. So hospitable or generous to guests. The next phrase is able to teach. Does it say able to teach in public? What does it say? Able to teach, right? This could be in private, could be in public. Able to teach. There's no restriction on the venue here. Verse 3, not given to wine. Literally, it means not drunken. So, if Daryl were to get up one Sunday morning and preach a sermon and it was obvious that he was drunk, that's going to be a problem, right? Because he's going to have us turn to like Hezekiah or something, and that's not going to work too well. So, it's okay. <laughs> not given to wine. Not violent. This is literally uh, somebody who's not ready to throw down. If, if, I, I would imagine the message translation probably says something close to that. But it's not ready to throw a punch. Not constantly ready to be violent. Uh, Spurgeon's commentary on this passage is hilarious. He talks about a, a bishop that he knew, and this was, you know, 100 plus years ago, that walked around with a big heavy cane who would knock people on the head when he saw them sin. And it was like, dude, do you not know the scriptures, right? Because it says, don't do that. There are some things you just say, don't do that. And hitting people on the head is one of those things not to do. It is not a pleasant thing. So, so don't do that, right? 
So not quarrelsome. I'm sorry, I skipped a phrase here. Uh, not greedy for money. Right? Not greedy for money. But gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not covetous. And the covetous is... we. We, say, we hear covetous and we go, well, didn't he just deal with money? Well, covetous is much broader than just money. It, it's coveting anything and everything. So it's kind of like, don't covet money. And then also, while I'm on that topic, don't covet anything else. That's just probably not a good thing, right? So verse 4, um, one who rules his own house well. And this word well, you'll see it several times uh, as we go through. But this word well means beautifully or finely or excellently. Um, the idea is that it is... You look at it and you go, oh, that's not normal, right? This is something that is done well. Um, having his children in submission with all reverence. Verse 5, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And there's another commentary line here. It says, Paul recognizes that it is in the home where our Christianity is first demonstrated. hard, right? Because sometimes, confession time, um, I don't feel overly spiritual when I stand up and speak to you on Sunday mornings. <sighs> Imagine that, right? Sometimes Julie and I have just had a knockdown, drag out, slobber knocker fight over some crap that one of the kids did that morning, and I am really pissed off. Sometimes, Okay. Now, we're going on vacation in a couple of hours, so I can say that right now because life's about to get really good. Um, but sometimes it's really hard because I know I've got to stand up and talk to you guys about something that I've got to go get my own junk cleaned up before I can come up here and talk about it, right? And that's life, right? And our pastors, they go through this same thing too. They, they're, they all have, you've met their kids, right? <laughs> I love their kids. All right, 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. Here we go. Not a novice, literally not a new convert. Um, and this kind of just makes sense, right? I mean, you, you don't want somebody that just learned about Jesus last week preaching to you tomorrow. Uh, maybe not. That, that might not work too well. Right? Um, and this was something that I didn't... Uh, people in his commentary on the New Testament said that he noticed that when Paul and Barnabas would travel to different cities in Acts, they would never appoint elders the first time they visited a city. They would go and they would start a church and they would leave and they would come back years later and then they would appoint elders because by that time, somebody had time to grow up in the faith and become mature and have clear leadership over those people. And I thought, that was really kind of just wise not to instantly throw up some folks that just learned about Jesus last week. So verse 6, not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. That would be bad. Verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside or outside the church, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So that's what, um, that's the, the qualifications of our leaders, of our pastors. You might call them elders. You hear other churches called bishops or whatever, whatever term you want to use. It's the leadership. It's not the laity. How many of you are familiar with the term laity? Laity is it's a ecclesiastical. It's a, okay, back up. It's a church word. 
using the wrong terms to describe something. The church word that means not the leadership. So we're all laity in here, right? Because are any of us pastors? That would be so cool if somebody raised their hand and thought they were, but but just now. (laughs) You don't ever ask a question in Sunday school, you're not pretty sure you know the answer to, so. Um, It's gotten me in trouble on more than one occasion. All right, so verse 8. So now we switch gears and look at the deacons. So verse 8, likewise deacons, and it's just this word that's used over and over and over in the New Testament. Uh, the best description of it for what the function was in the first century church is a waiter. It's a waiter, like person who do you want uh, that steak cooked well done, like Moses intended, or do you want that steak cooked uh, medium rare, like Leviticus said don't do? Okay? I thought that was funny, but none of you laughed, so, okay. So it's basically a, a waiter. The, the first deacons were assigned to... Uh, is actually a, a result of what I talked about earlier. Thousands of people came to know Jesus Christ on Pentecost, and those thousands of people then became homeless because they were kicked out of their families. And the deacons were gathered together. These men were set aside to go and physically bring food to all of these people who lost their support network. Uh, it, was a, it was a food distribution service is what it was. And that somehow, over 2,000 years, has devolved into deacon boards running churches. I'm like, no, guys, literally, literally, the most deacon-like thing you can do is to go bring somebody McDonald's, not vote on something else, okay? It just, it astonishes me. It astonishes me. Um, it, they're servants. I mean, that's the... In the New Testament, this word is translated servants several other different places. So the deacons must be reverent, must not be double-tongued. Double-tongued is saying one thing to somebody and then saying the opposite to somebody else. Uh, one of the commentators I read said that the deacons tell the truth the first time. I like that to teach to my kids, too. That's pretty cool. Tell the truth the first time. Um, not given or attending to much wine. Uh, literally, it means you don't sit at a bar all day long because it's going to be really hard to go serve if you're drunk all the time. Uh, not greedy for money. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. So so here's what I found this word, to, this phrase to mean in my life. I've served as a deacon for several years, and... And I have talked to men about becoming deacons in our church, um, having this conversation, and I'll say it something like this. Well, how strongly do you hold to the gospel? How comfortable are you with the fact that Jesus died and was buried and rose again and your relationship with Jesus Christ? And if there comes back a, uh, well, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good with that. Ooh, time out, time out, time out because we're going to put you in service opportunity positions where you're going to need to hold on to that strong, where there cannot be any wavering, there cannot be any faltering. You've got to know what you believe. I'm not saying got the whole Old Testament and the New Testament memorized. I'm saying holding on to the mystery of the faith. This is your salvation. This is how you get to heaven. Holding on to that with a pure conscience. And the idea is that I'm not waffling inside. And you can kind of tell when somebody's waffling inside, right? You just kind of know. It's like, I don't think they feel too comfortable with that. Well, yeah, they don't feel comfortable with it because they don't believe it. And that's a problem. That's a real problem. So you've got to have somebody that's, that's comfortable 
with their beliefs. So verse 10, but let these also first be tested or scrutinized. Then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. So it's almost like you get this trial run period, right? You get this trial run period where we see if, is this going to work for you or is this not going to work for you? Um, a few years ago, we started at Stewart Heights this group leader concept. Um, and it, it really honestly came out of the fact that we didn't have enough deacons. Uh, we needed more deacons to do the work. We could not find enough men that wanted to sign up to serve as a deacon. So uh, me and Daryl sitting in his office one day were like, so how do we get more? He's like, well, I don't know. I said, I don't know. I'm not smart like that. I, give me, you give me a structure and I'll go implement it. I said, but I'm not the guy that comes up with it. So we start playing around with some stuff and he comes up with this group leader thing. And it's basically each deacon has several folks that help him do the work, right? So we start kicking the tires on this thing and here's what we found. We found that those folks that were helping him do the work, we got a test run on who would be a good deacon. Some of the best deacons that we have today came out of that test run period that, look, we got to watch you do this work. Now we know you can. Let's have you serve as a deacon. It was really good dry run. And it was, all goes back to the scripture, right? Because we didn't actually come up with anything original. We just repackaged it and called it something different. So. You guys are dry this morning, okay? It is hot in here, isn't it? All right, verse 10. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Verse 11. Likewise, their wives must be reverent. The exact same word used in verse 10. Not slanderers. Anybody know what the Greek word for this is? Anybody know? Diabolos. Literally, not devils. So, if your wife is the devil, you should not serve as a deacon. Okay. <laughs> that was hilarious. She said, once a month or what? <laughs> that was awesome. Wow, it's really hot in here now. <laughs> okay, so not slanderers, right? So we're not... We're not maligning the rest of the body all the time. This is a real problem. This is a real problem. So temperate, so this is the same word up above, uh, sober, you know, she's not a drunk either, faithful in all things. And think about those four words, right? You want to have four hard words to live by, faithful in all things. Well, how about like except on Saturday afternoons or something, right? Or, or except when I run into that person. Or except when I'm really, really tired and just don't feel like it. There's no, no conditions on that. It's just faithful in all things. Verse 12, let deacons be present tense. Okay? Present tense. Uh, Greek has four different tenses that are common, at least. There's several others that are ridiculously uncommon, and I hadn't got my head wrapped around those. There's four different tenses. There's past, there's present, there's future, and there's, anybody know? Aorist, yes. And aorist is basically, uh, the word I'm saying is A-O-R-I-S-T, aorist. Uh, aorist is basically irrespective of time. It's the idea that the word itself is being communicated, not a time frame with the word. Okay? So there's a belief in lots of churches today that a deacon, or a pastor even, should only have ever had one wife in his life. And if Paul had intended to have that theology communicated, he should have used the aorist tense, 
to show past, present, and future all at once, irrespective of time, one wife. He did not. He used the present tense. So at the present time, you should only have one wife. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's your Greek lesson for the day. Right? Yes, the devil is in the details. Yeah. Yeah, there's... That's... Yep. And it's really, really, really hard when you get down to the... Oh, okay. So what does this impact mean? Because um, this impacts lives, right? This impacts who serves in these capacities. So I, I think it's actually a much simpler discussion than some other things in this chapter. I have kind of moved over some more challenging components of this chapter. Um, you're like, yeah, I know you have. Yes, I have. That's exactly right. Um, that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom, I think. <laughs> okay, we'll just leave it at that. So verse 12, let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. And that word ruling, I, I, you don't hear me say this very often, but I think it's a really lousy translation in the New King James. Uh, it means to preside over or to protect or to care for or to give attention to. Uh, superintending would be a much better word, that I'm watching over, I'm protecting, I'm engaged here. But ruling has the implication of I've got a gavel in my hand and I'm swinging it, right? And that's not really the intent here. Doug, do you have something? Good managers, that's pretty good. I like that, right? Because is the manager always right? <laughs> no, he is not. <laughs> You're getting vetoed by the manager there, so just so you know. <laughs> the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain or purchase for themselves a good standing or a good step up and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So it's a good thing. When you can serve well in one of these capacities, it is a good thing. Okay? Does that make sense? So now, now we'll get to where we started, because we've kind of come full circle. So verse 14, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write that you may know how you ought to conduct or live in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. So Paul's going to kind of sum it all up. Whenever Paul starts summing it up, look for Jesus, because that's where he's going. Okay? So great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit. Now justified, we think of as justified as you're no longer guilty of your sin. Well, justification is actually just a declaration of righteousness. If you are already righteous, it's just a declaration of righteousness. The Spirit of God declared Jesus to be what he always was. So can Jesus be justified? Well, sure. He can be declared to be righteous because he is. That's like the easiest justification ever, right? You look at Jesus and you go, well, you're righteous. Duh. Right? Okay. So God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So Paul is saying that the mystery of godliness is Jesus. How does, how does God relate to us, Jesus? Oh, okay. So when you go back and you reread 1 Timothy 3, and it looks like Jesus, that's the mystery of godliness, right? Because it all goes back to Jesus. 
So we shouldn't be surprised that the prerequisites for leadership in the church look like Jesus looks. So what's the point here? Well, kind of obvious stuff, and I think I've hit on most of it. Number one, God has prerequisites for leadership and standards for his servants. Number two, God's prerequisites have not changed. That's kind of cool, I think. It allows for consistency in the body of Christ. And then number three, God's prerequisites will not change. Cool thing is, if Jesus tarries for another thousand years, this is still going to be the standard. You're like, oh, well, that's nice. So what does that mean for me? Well, number one, encourage and exhort my pastors in these prerequisites. When we see one, them do one of these things, hey, that's awesome. I read about that the other day. That's cool. You just did it. Pat on the back. Thanks. If you see them not do that, you know what exhort means, right? Come here, Exhort is... Exhort is, hey, man, I love you. And... and uh, <laughs> Let it be known, I did not kiss Barry. Um, exhort means I come along, I put my arms around you, and I say, I love you, and I care about you. And I think, I think, because we were very careful about making an accusation. We are very careful about making an accusation. I think I saw something that was inconsistent here. Probably so. Right? <laughs> Thank you. So, so we can... I love you, man. So we can encourage and exhort them to live according to these standards. Um, number two, I could not think of a better way to phrase this, and it sounds awful. Number two is be easy to be overlooked. Um, so our pastor's job is to overlook and to oversee. Well, be easy to be overlooked, right? And there will be times in our lives where we need a lot of care and a lot of attention, and that's just the way it works. I get it. But let's help them do the work, right? Can you imagine what they got on them? And then number three, chain my, train my children. Uh, not chain. Train. <laughs> train with a T, T-R-A-I-N, train my children to fill these roles. If I know what the job description is going to look like 20 years from now when Caleb's old enough to serve, that's where I'm headed, right? Why would I not head there? That's the, yes, go this direction, go this direction, that's it. And when I see him walking this way, no, 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 come back over here, come back over here, because the end goal is to serve well. Um, it, that's where I'm headed. I don't, I don't know. So you say, but I have a little girl. Well, great. You know, Caleb's going to need a wife one day. Who's not a devil. Thank you. <laughs> we were listening. We were listening. Yeah, so don't raise little devils, right? <laughs> that's awesome. That's a, I should have put that in there. It's even better. So, so that's what our church leadership looks like. That's what they're striving to be. That's how we can help them. So go do that work.